engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm James Titko and today we're going to be taking a trip to the British seaside to see a sea monster. That's the title for the decommissioned gas platform turned art installation attempting to fuel discussions around reuse and renewable energy in Western Supermare. The backdrop for this week's show is the imposing gas platform currently beached on the coast of Western Supermare in North Somerset. The rig, which once harvested the natural resources buried deep under the North Sea, has been turned into an art installation that goes by the name of Sea Monster. That's sea with two E's. I had the pleasure of finding out all about it on a trip across the width of the country alongside fellow naked scientists Will Tingle and Risa Bagwandin. Hopefully the mic's picking me up here at a very windy western supermare. Will, what, why have you dragged us down here? What are we doing here? I'm glad you asked. We're here at the new installation called Sea Monster at Western Supermare. A decommissioned oil platform has been pulled into the coastal side of the town. It's a remarkable sort of visage on the landscape. It's this huge platform. It's, it's one hell of a statement. Well, what are we waiting for? My name is Patrick Omani. I'm creative director and founder at New Substance, the studio uh, that led the development of Sea Monster. So what we're looking at today is the 36-metre-high gas platform that we reclaimed from the North Sea and for the first time in the world reimagined it into a large-scale installation looking at conversations around reuse, um, around renewable energy and the great British weather. A gas platform, you say, from the North Sea. We're in Western Supermare here in the west of England. How the hell did you get it here? The rig was originally sited once we were taken it out of the North Sea um, in the Netherlands. We had the joy of then bringing it into Western Supermare. Western Supermare having, I think, you know, the second highest tidal range in the whole world or something ridiculous. So we sailed it here, had to wait for a very specific tidal window um, in each month, which is around the 11th, so we could bring the barge as far up the beach as possible. The whole thing, we did it over four days in the end. So, you know, a huge piece of theatre, I suppose, in my mind in itself. In the same way, you know, we're reusing the rig and that had a previous life. The tro- it was quite a nice parallel in the sense where the trop had this big previous life as the, the Lido and we were having an opportunity to reimagine it as a, a kind of a new arts destination in itself. Uh, my name is Maya and I thought the um, sea monster was just magnificent. It's so, like, it's so tall. And, like, the waterfall is just crazy. Is that your favourite I love bit, it. The Well, the slide was very, like, cool. Hi, my name is Mary. Um, it just, like, like wows me because the solar tree that's on the garden lab, I think, yeah. um, it almost produces almost all of the solar power that's up there. It's so fun to come on a school trip and just see it, like, in person, because I've never been to it before. And then the scales, the, like... There's so many. They said that the original thing came from the Northern Sea, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, the North Sea. And then the light bulbs, they honestly, like, they looks like really mythical on the garden lab area. And at the top, I think it's called the Healy Deck. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. 
you could see like Western from a different perspective. Hello, my name's Leslie Pattenden. I'm one of the hosts on The Sea Monster. And I work with Leslie. My name's Walter Byron, again in the host role. So this is my favourite deck and because you have the most magnificent, spectacular view of Western that you haven't got really with any any other way. This is our space that was designed for contemplation. Though the scales, the, there are 6,000 of them and they're anodised aluminium and they're hexagonal in shape. And the idea behind that was that they are the scales of the monster. People might just be able to pick up our listeners on the, the dulcet tones coming out of the speakers dotted around this top deck. So the shipping forecasted was designed by Admiral Fitzroy and it was really to protect the ships from being marooned on rocks. And it's had several iterations ever since and they are broadcast on radio and then they go through in a particular manner with a speed and a rhythm of the words which is really very soothing. On our way up here, we got a bit of a shower from something that resembled a sprinkler system. What's, what's the message behind that? Well, that's, um, that's on our cellar deck there. You've got to ask the principal, why, are, why is Sea Monster here? As an educational platform, we're looking at sustainability, we're looking at repurposing of old industry, and also the British weather. So we're trying to regenerate clouds. Now, the problem we have, Western Supermare, the clouds get blown away. It's quite windy here on our seafront, but we're still using it to teach, especially the school kids when they're coming in on tours, about the different types of clouds, how they shape our environment. Again, you know, if you're going to have a monster and the monster's moving, it needs to spit on people too. So I hope that you had it in mind when you got wet there. (laughs) The principle of reuse in the rig itself, you know, no one looks at disused rigs and thinks, oh, that would make a great art installation. You know, we've got to where we are because of structures like that. And to position that in a provocative way, you start conversations about, be it big industrial structures like this, these, be it, you know, barges, be it power stations, be it rigs themselves, these structures all exist a part of our history. I want people to smile at people, to be inspired by the scale of it, the ambition of it. And another big core was around renewable energy. So we've got on the garden lab which is the um, second to top deck new piece in solar and a new piece in um, wind power generation and we worked with consultants originally who were suggesting your usual big white wind turbines and your solar sheets because right now they're by far the most efficient way of any generation and and that's great but if we want to look at you know bigger place making pieces in city centers and we, we need arts and design to come and meet the engineers in the middle so what we wanted to do here again is provoke that conversation in a sculptural form so people actually stop and look and ask those questions about could this be in our city could this be in our playground you know i suppose trying to provoke that conversation if we just gone for usual solar sheets and a white wind turbine people just walk past it and that conversation would never have started it's quite interesting you use the word provocative i think because that's not necessarily the word i was i was going to go i definitely see what you mean I don't know if you saw over the weekend what happened at the National Gallery with the tomato soup flung over the sunflowers. And I think in the end, there wasn't any damage actually done to the painting. So that was more of the provocative way of getting that message across because these topics that you're trying to get people to think about, renewables, uh, circular economy, I feel like it's been quite a different approach maybe. Am I on the right lines there? You know, we wanted people to love the project. Obviously, you know, we didn't do this to try and be divisive in that process but you know we, we had it in, in in the town itself we had great support but we also had people saying what why on earth are they bringing a big structure like this 
And then when we opened, I think people had a very different reaction once they go on it. You could see the big wild garden at the top, you know. So I, I think that was always our our intention. We always wanted it to become part of Western Supermare and, you know, part of the community and loved in that process. But we knew it was going to be a little bit bumpy along the way. And Patrick, finally, we'd be remiss not to ask, given the conversations you're trying to start with this project, what's going to happen at the end of the exhibition? We were always uh, commissioned for a certain period of time. So we close on the 5th of November at the moment. And then we basically analyse the rig. There's kind of a number of different aspects of legacy. So the, the garden, all the trees and the plants and the planters all go to a new home. Same with the solar and all the sculptural piece. And then at the moment, the entire of the rig then is fully recycled. It goes back into a decommissioning cycle and recycle all the steel. What we always intended was this was like blueprint number one as sea monster number one. And now we're starting to see the, the benefit of that. You know, we had a conversation last week, somebody wants to use one as a bird sanctuary and somebody wants to use it as an art gallery and starting to help them, give them the tools from our blueprint to kind of go forward and then do their own version of this. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Well, inspired by the message Sea Monster is attempting to convey about repurposing old things, in their case, turning a gas platform into a tourist attraction, we've set out to shine a light on an emerging and vital intersection of science and policymaking known as the circular economy. In short, it's a way of designing our societies and infrastructure that places sustainability at the centre of our plans for growth. To give us an overview of this rapidly expanding field, Risa Bagwandin spoke with Professor Richard Harrington, Head of Earth Sciences at the Natural History Museum. Well, the circular economy actually is we should be keeping all the products and materials that we use, we should keep them in, in use so that effectively we don't throw anything away that we create. We find a use for it. Either we use, upcycle, or we recycle it back and turn it into a new product. What effect is a lack of circular economy having on the environment? Well, the key thing is waste. If we don't have a circular economy, we are allowing things to be called waste and therefore we have to look for a place to dispose of them. The other thing is that because we are effectively throwing potentially useful things away, we're then putting energy into making new products from new materials. And obviously that's very wasteful because if we could just use those old materials again, we would be saving that energy footprint. What can we do as individuals to maximise our efficiency or to actively participate in a circular economy? When you buy a product, when you use a product, we should always be thinking about what we're going to do with that product once we've finished with it. We ought to think about the product and its packaging and all of those things. So with the packing, are we going to throw that away or is that going to be reused? And the product itself, when it comes to the end of its life, are we just going to take it up to the the local tip or are we going to think about what's going to happen to it when it comes to the end of its life? Do you think industries should have more initiative to create consumer goods of greater quality? Because right now there is a range of products available. There is also things of lower quality that we know that is cheaper but will not last as long. Do you think that there should be more initiatives by industry to ensure that there are certain quality standards perhaps? I think so. And this got to be consumer driven because it is up to us to demand better quality products and products that last longer. Because it's really annoying to buy a washing machine that after five years no longer works very well. 
I go back to my childhood when washing machines lasted a lot longer. They were simpler, but we got into a society where we wanted always to get the new product meant that manufacturers realized people were only going to have a product for a few years. And therefore, they designed products that were only for shorter lives. So I think as consumers, we should be demanding better quality products that we expect to use What about the use of recycled materials? For example, steel structures can be recycled, although there is a hesitancy to use recycled steel in case its properties has changed. No, that's a really good point. From something like steel, we recycle that a lot, but we have to be really careful that when we recycle, we create a product that's of equal quality. There has to be much more attention paid to monitoring what is inside the products that we create. When we create steel, it goes into a building, let's say, there should be information kept about what are the other metals that might be in the steel. Because that has a bearing on when we go to recycle it, if it gets too contaminated with other, other metals, for example, the steel might lose its qualities. And therefore, then we would only be able to use that steel for something that was needed less of a pure steel. So we need to be able to track those materials that are in in buildings and so on, so that when we get round to recycle them, we don't create products that are of lower quality. With respect to our carbon emissions, is it possible to find alternative uses for carbon dioxide? It is, actually. And so there are people that are, you might have heard of this term, carbon capture, Um, And so there are uses for carbon dioxide. I mean, it's used industrially. We use it actually in the food industry. So it it is used for that. But we can also use carbon dioxide to create materials. And so there is quite a lot of research going into how we can turn carbon dioxide in the atmosphere into either products, or we could capture that and put it into deep reservoirs, which then eventually will start to turn back into rocks. So the carbon dioxide will combine with the minerals in those rocks. So it is possible to capture carbon dioxide. Another really good way of capturing carbon dioxide, of course, is using plants. So this is why revegetating forests and so on is so important at wetlands because those areas capture carbon dioxide and and lock it in in the plant matter. I mean, it would be lovely in a world if we had zero waste and that's really where we should aspire. But my takeaway for people is let's be less wasteful in our lives and think about all of those things that we use. And remember that there, we talk about throwing things away, but there is no away really, because if we're putting things into landfill, that's got to be damaging. So we should get away from thinking about creating waste, minimizing that, and then using the things that we, we take out of the ground and we, and we harvest from the fields. We should be looking to value those more. Richard Harrington there from the Natural History Museum. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. This is The Naked Scientists with me, James Titko. And this week, we're snooping around the circular economy. Our trip to Sea Monster, the decommissioned North Sea gas rig turned art exhibition, has given us an appetite to search for ways science is baking reuse into policies which are pushing for growth. So now that we've defined what we mean by circular economy, it's time to look at a practical example. As we are all now well aware, renewable energy has to be the main source of any future economy's firepower. 
As we make our transition to renewables, we have to plan for the structures that produce the energy to have several lives so we don't offset the good they do with excessive waste. One of the newly found challenges is what to do with decommissioned wind turbines. The average wind turbine's lifespan is affected by many different things, its size, how often it gets used, and even the occasional lightning strike. With all that considered, the average lifespan is around 25 years. Currently, most turbine blades end up in landfill and are set to account for 43 million tonnes of waste by 2050 unless we find a solution. Carla De Laurentiis, lecturer in environmental management at the University of the West of England, spoke to Will Tingle about the problem. There are different options. Uh, you can look at three main options. One is life extension. So, you know, can you extend actually that design and technical life span? Uh, one could be uh, repowering, either a partial or a full repowering of your um, wind, uh, wind farm. And then the last one is decommissioning. All, obviously, all the three different ones will have some sort of element of decommissioning because what you're going to do with, you know, if you think about lifetime span, if you are, um, in order to extend the lifespan, you're going to have to replace some elements of that wind turbines. So there is going to be some waste generated from uh, from um, life extension, repowering. Again, if you're changing the size of the blades, if you're changing the height of it, so you're replacing the old wind turbines, you're going to be left with, uh, you know, some, some material that needs to be taken into consideration. In terms of what you can do, there are differences. I think one of the main issues is, uh, you know, what we need to try and avoid is uh, that this uh, um, waste material ends up in landfill. There is a lot of interest from the wind industry to avoid that, that with, uh, you know, 2025 being a year where we, they want to stop actually wind farm and the commissioning waste reaching um, landfill. The options and the opportunity, I suppose, are, you know, what can we do with those, uh, with our waste material, you know, with, the, with waste management? Can we look at the opportunities that the circular economy can offer to, to reuse, repurpose some of those materials? There are challenges, you know, the challenges are due to, you know, there are issues around the recycle, recycling material and the, the market available for those, you know, the, the cost that you pay for secondary material that sometimes are in competition with primary uh, resources, accessibility of the wind farm, because obviously some of the, those sites are going to be up in the hills, you know, how you're going to, so logistically as well, it's going to be difficult to actually um, collect and manage that that, um, that waste. But also is an, an emergent market. So what can you do with those uh, those materials and, and those uh, dismissed um, wind farm? One of the main challenges, I suppose, because if you look at the, the commissioning, I, I was quite interested to see that basically 85% to 90% of the materials of a wind farm can actually be recycled. And that is because, I suppose, quite a lot of the components are either made of steel or concrete, if you think about the base. In actual term, there is no way that we are actually reaching those rates. And one of the ch main challenges due to the blade and the way the, the, the material they, they compose the, and the, the blade, because they're mostly composite, which they're much more complex. So you know, there are different options that we can actually look at, especially if we start looking at circular economy and circular economy approaches to reusing them. I read something recently about the blades are being used to prop up bridges now. What is the realistic reusage of these blades? 
There are a number of opportunities that can be explored. Um, some of them, as you mentioned, you know, they can be used for or reused. We call it in the circular, in circular economy terms is repurposing. So we're using them, we're using them for a different purpose. They can be um, used for structural materials, so, you know, building bridges. But also we can use them for play parks. You know, so you can look at uh, different ways in which you can uh, use uh, the material. The problem is that, for instance, one of the main, one of the first uh, play park uh, uh, being constructed in uh, in Rotterdam, he used five blades for a, a, a children play park. You know, we're talking about this amount of waste increasing immensely in the next few few years. So, what what can we do with you know once this, the scale of the problem is going to become more of a challenge? There are, for instance, County Cork in Ireland again, and the second uh, blade is called the Blade Bridge, being constructed. There is another one in Poland. Blades can also be used for garden furniture. You know, so I think the the possibilities uh, could be endless. You know, there are many. It's just like trying to make sure that from you know we move from those niche applications to um, bigger scales and uh, scaling up those uh, uh, niche applications to become more the norm. And from the you know from the wind industry interest, I think the, their interest is actually to extend the life of the wind farm. So that that would be the preferred option, but also to look at uh, opportunities for repurposing because uh, those are the main uh, the main areas of experimentation being looked at. Carla De Laurentiis on how we can make best use of wind turbines once they have reached the end of their lifespan. So hopefully now you've got an idea of what the circular economy is and why it's a fundamental piece of future-proofing the economy. Given how integral most scientists expect this way of thinking to be in everything we do moving forward, the question then becomes how do we get this message across beyond the people who are already convinced of the fact? That's where we come full circle to what triggered this look at the circular economy in the first place. The collaboration of artists and scientists in Western Supermare is one such way of helping to spread the message of reuse to people without provoking the sort of existential dread that can be conjured up when facing up to the vastness of the difficulties we face in relation to the climate. Will Tingle spoke to Ella Gilbert, climatologist and sea monster collaborator, about how starting these conversations in an approachable way might be a key way to face up to the predicament we found ourselves in. Waste in our economy, at least in the UK and many kind of developed nations, it's out of sight, out of mind. You put your rubbish and your recycling in a wheelie bin and it gets taken away magically before you've woken up usually and then it's gone. You don't think about it. And actually we don't necessarily remember or consciously think about all of the sort of environmental impacts of everything that we use that we throw away that we make and we buy and all these kind of things i think the other point is that it's about the way our society is structured so that waste is dealt with in the way that it's dealt with because individuals can only make so big a difference and we can all do our bit to you know recycle our household waste but ultimately it's a societal scale problem and an international problem because you know carbon emissions are a form of waste we're just disposing of them in the atmosphere and the oceans and polluting our planet using our waste carbon and it's a waste management problem ultimately it's just a very very big one as you say a lot of it comes down to cognitive dissonance it's the idea of if it's not there it's not your problem and As you said, it's not truly about what the individual can do. It is, in a way. You can reduce your waste individually, but it's more about convincing corporations, organisations that are responsible for the majority of carbon emissions or plastic waste. So is there, do you think, a different way 
that we can convince larger corporations who are perhaps not interested in the personal aspect of reducing waste? I think many of the corporations are interested in personal actions because it gives them a reason to not tackle their own emissions. But personally, I'm of the opinion that individual actions come second to the kind of large-scale actions that need to happen, first and foremost. I mean, the climate science is extremely clear that the problem is extremely urgent and we have to act really urgently. That requires whole-scale shifts in the way we do things and that cannot be achieved through individual action alone. It has to be from the scale of governments, from corporations, from large organisations. It has to be all at the same time. And this is why it's such a challenge because it's a huge problem and it's one that requires really concerted action from a whole cross-section of society and actually coordinating that sort of action is really difficult. We mentioned this with Patrick, but we'd also like to have your take on it. Have you, I'm sure you're aware of the uh, sunflower incident that happened. That was a demonstration for the climate, which was more of a shock value type thing, if you take it at face value. Whereas this project, Sea Monster, is more of a, an inclusive type build. Which do you think is more effective in terms of changing the public's mind? I think regardless of what you think about specific methods or tactics around climate protests... I think the fact that we're talking about climate change is objectively a good thing. Um, And I think the other thing that's very clear is that we need a variety of different ways of communicating the urgency, of communicating what can be done to tackle the problem very importantly. And it looks very different to different people. You know, it could be writing a letter to your MP, it could be redesigning an oil and gas platform into an art science exhibition. It could be making a statement that is a publicity stunt. It could be switching your petrol car to an electric bike. You know, all of these things are ways of tackling the climate crisis. They're all extremely different, but they all have value in the sense that we're talking about climate change and we're taking action on climate change. And I think something about Sea Monster that I've been so excited by is that it's a positive story. It's showing what needs to be done, what can be done, and it tells it in such a a positive way that I'm a firm believer in the power of positive storytelling because so often when it comes to climate change, we're told these stories that are very doom and gloom we hear about how things are really awful the terrible extreme events that are devastating people's lives how it's going to get worse and it's not to take away from those things because you know as a climate scientist I'm very keenly aware of how terrifying and destructive climate change is already and how much worse it's going to get if we don't take action but we can't expect people to take action unless we showcase what that action will look like how we get there and what other benefits it has you know you could have a much more beautiful world that is more inclusive and accessible and we can rely on renewable technologies and all of those things that we know that we hear just showing how it can be done and how it is being done is a has a really profound impact so this project would be something that could potentially invoke a circular mindset into people is that what we we could take away from this Having come full circle, (laughs) I think exactly we want to inspire those conversations about reuse and redesign and how we can use those principles to transform our society.
Thanks there to Ella Gilbert, climatologist with the British Antarctic Survey, who was also one of the collaborators with the Sea Monster, part of artists and scientists, trying to start those conversations around the climate in an, in an approachable way. And it's nice to hear about something that's trying to make a difference, I suppose, outside of the people who already care so passionately about issues around securing a sustainable future. It's something of a shared mission here on The Naked Scientist, because as grateful as we are to our listeners, you guys probably aren't the ones we necessarily need to be reaching out to sometimes when we're covering topics like the climate crisis. It's also important to mention, I suppose, while we were at the the Sea Monster, we heard some dissenting voices, of course. There was some opposition to the project along the lines of, in the current economic climate, is such a grand display, the best use of tight budgets, etc. But I have to say... The longer I spent walking around the display, chatting with the hosts, one of the sort of policies of the display was there's not a lot of reading involved, and it was a, it was a big part of it was about encouraging conversation, something perhaps we've lost over the last couple of years over the course of the pandemic. Anyway, that's probably where we'll have to leave it this week. Next week, though, set your watch. We're going to be talking about the body clock and the science of sleep in preparation for the clocks going back. We'll be looking at some of the very real health impacts of changing time zones and how sleep turns out to be a very vital step in cementing information in the brain. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm James Titko. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.